The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Strangers said they believed that she had not known what crimes her husband was committing. Some people related their own stories of tragedy and betrayal. One woman shared what it was like to be the daughter of a serial killer and how utterly shocked she was when the truth came out. Another woman wrote about her abusive father and how he cruelly tortured her pets. Judith was not alone. The stunning realization moved her from a loner, trapped in a purgatory of shame, to being a Survivors Club member. From She Married the Green River Killer by Penny Wood. Well, welcome back, Murder Bookies. I'm your host, Jill. Welcome to Episode 61, Second Cast, Rebirth, Her Renaissance. She Married the Green River Killer by Penny Wood, Part 3. In our last episode, oh, what a doozy, we gained insight into the daily life of a serial killer. As Judith and Gary Ridgway settled into a happy marriage, vacationing in their motorhome, going to garage sales and swap meets for items, not spouses. Yeah, yeah, a few of your minds went there. They're anticipating a few more years until Gary can retire at 55. But right after Thanksgiving, Gary is arrested after his DNA ties him to three of the Green River Killer victims. Arrested. Judith's world she built around Gary is split apart, sending her into years of denial and despair, unable to comprehend how Gary was such a good husband and yet had strangled at least 48 women. Gary's confession that he was the Green River Killer shattered Judith after 14 years of marriage. Her best friend, Linda Bailey, was deeply concerned about her. The debilitating impact of the depression did not seem to be abating. Being treated for cancer, Judith's father had finally improved with her parents moving. This allowed Judith to live in their double-wide mobile home, a real kindness for their lost, confused daughter. But the double-wide was dark, with a cave-like quality to it, feeding Judith's fear of going out, being terrified that people knew who she was, and were judging her. Unable to get to Gary, maybe they'd want to hurt her. Linda asked her why she was so worried about all this. Quote, don't you get it? People probably think I'm bad too, like Gary. People must think that I should have known what he was doing, that I should have done something to stop him, end quote, said Judith. Now, this is legit. I have seen people make these comments, however thoughtless and cruel. Of course, none of this was her fault. Gary is solely responsible. Judith is a collateral victim of Gary's. His sins are not her burden to bear. And some some true crime folk need to remember this. November 5th, 2003. It was the day Gary Leon Ridgway pled guilty of premeditated murder 48 times, televised everywhere. He admitted there were probably more, but he just didn't recall. Two weeks later, in Judge Richard Jones' court, came victim impact statements. 
with each family member given 10 minutes to address the killer. Some cursed, some condemned, some shouted. Judith saw Gary stoically enduring their commentary, but there was one exception, a father, Richard Rule. He didn't hate Gary, and he told him that he had forgiven him for killing his daughter. Gary's composure cracked, tears streaming down his face. You can see a video of this exchange posted on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Robert Rule's daughter was Linda Jane Rule, known to her family as Janie. He described his Janie as, quote, one of the brightest, happiest little kids. She loved everybody. She'd hug anyone. She loved writing. She was better educated than either of us. She had luminous eyes, a love of learning and ambition beyond working the street, end quote. Like many of the Green River victims, Janie had dropped out middle school and left home at age 14, taking up sex work to support herself. Recently engaged to her 24-year-old boyfriend, Bobby, they both hoped to have a regular, normal life. One day, Janie went shopping at Kmart, never to be seen again. Linda Jane Rule was 16, so young. After victim impact statements were complete, Judge Jones sentenced Gary Ridgway to 48 life sentences to be served at Walla Walla State Penitentiary with no possibility of parole. So it was over, right? No. Gary began to write Judith, causing untold indecision, pain, and angst. Each unopened letter stacked up on the next with Judith's mind raging. Quote, you creep. You killed innocent girls and which I hate you for what you've done and for ruining my life, end quote, which was mixed with concern. Was he eating? How was he? And why did she miss him? She received phone calls from the media requesting interviews, denying them all. When a bouquet of roses appeared, it threw Judith into a panic. How had this reporter found her? Linda and Jim soothed her anxiety, fears, and worries with this pattern repeating itself for the next few years. Jim noted the box wine in the fridge. Was Judith abusing alcohol again? Simply overwhelmed, she leaned on Jim to handle paperwork, calling to ask for advice. And I'm sure this was exhausting for Linda and Jim, who are truly decent people and good friends trying to help. Linda noted Judith picking at her hands and suggested she see a doctor. It was reaching critical mass. Either Judith would pull it together or go off the deep end. In early 2004, three years after Gary was arrested, when the stack of unopened Gary letters grew large enough, they just couldn't be ignored any longer, and Judith decided it was time. There are quite a few Gary letters in the book, and I will share a couple tidbits with you. I strongly suggest reading Pennywood's book, as it goes into so much detail. The letters are enlightening, if self-serving, and his grammar is all his own. January 1st, 04. Dear Judith, I am very sorry for hurting you. I didn't mean to. I'm sorry I lied so many times. I was told by Sue Peters, the detective in the case, that you aren't going to write me. I don't want you to be sad anymore. The day of me pleading guilty, I needed you there so much. I cried most of the time. I did some bad things. I hurt a lot of people. Most of all, I hurt you. 1985, I made a prayer to God. I will stop killing if I don't get caught. I had to live with all that in me all those years. I couldn't tell you. I was like an alcoholic, 
dry for a time, but then I fell off the wagon. I miss you so much. Why did God let me do these things? End quote. This triggered a lot of tears flowing from Judith. He still loved her. Oh dear, there is so much I can say here. First, he did mean to hurt and to kill. It was his choice. God didn't let anything happen. Gary chose this path. He didn't have to do it. He chose. Well, well, he went on, quote, you are the best wife, lover, mother I ever had. I blow it. I needed help and couldn't find any. I'm sorry for what I did. It was wrong. But I had you and didn't want to lose you. Maybe I'm evil, a madman, the devil, and a monster. I pray for the ladies I killed. God forgive sinner. Will he ever forgive me? Love you, Gary L. Ridgway, end quote. I mean, he asks, maybe he's evil, a madman, the devil, maybe? He's not owning it. Oh, and he signs Gary L. Ridgway, like some other husband from prison was writing Judith. Gary L. Ridgway. Yeah, he is not owning it. And Judith's response to this was confusion. She hated him. She loved him. He also writes, now this really got to me that she should sprinkle his aftershave on her pillow because it would help her sleep better with good memories. And please, could she sprinkle her letters with perfume for him? Really? Oh, oh, and could she find out if he had been fired or terminated from Kenworth? Huh. Quote, with 30 plus years of service, you would think they would have a thank you letter, end quote. Oh my God, they employed a serial killer for 30 plus years and he expects a thank you note? All right, he is a narcissist. The audacity, that's his concern. That's his concern, that he get a thank you note. Whoa, yeah, piece of crap. Well, Judith wrote back a surprisingly considered letter, only discussing the financial difficulties and getting rid of their mutual things. There was no personal commentary included as she shored up that barricade between him and her heart. He wrote the same things, I love you, apologizing to her, and she still felt that push-pull. Quote, he's still trying to protect me. Idiot, he's the Green River Killer, end quote. And she ignored his letters for weeks. He continued writing, and she felt he was pressuring her to respond and to forgive him. Quote, I gave you some time to think about it. I'm not saying it will be like before all this happened. Forgiving me does not mean forgetting what I did. It's not excusing me for what I did. In Matthew 6.14, For if you forgive men their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their sins, neither will your Father forgive your sins. End quote. All right, seriously, dude? Manipulating her with Bible quotes? Did he miss that part of the Bible, like thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not lie? Don't quote the Bible, you pompous ass. Absolutely disgusting. Judith's response, quote, he's telling me I have to forgive him now. Well, maybe I'm not ready to do that, end quote. Will you go, girl? By April 2004, Gary was giving advice to her on finding a new church, maybe take a music class, maybe teach little kids how to read because she was so talented. 
Judith took this as him saying it was time for her to move on. She got out, driving over to see Linda and Jim. She began going to the bank, going to a store. It wasn't an epiphany, but a slow process that had finally begun after three years of being an emotionally devastated hermit. She bundled his letters together, putting them away, and it was time. Quote, when Judith made the decision to let go of Gary, she tapped into a new well of strength. She realized she had important matters to take care of. She sat up, felt energized. She looked around her mobile home, seeing it was time to paint over this dark paneling with some nice bright paint. And I can move that piece of furniture over there. And I need to learn how to use a computer and start eating better and lose some weight. End quote. Judith was beginning her life again. It was rebirth, her renaissance. Penny Wood interviewed the Ridgeway's best friends, Linda and Jim Bailey, to gather some insight into Gary and Judith as a couple. Linda was a no-nonsense nurse, while Jim had a more low-key personality, both still shocked by Gary's actions. So Jim and Gary met at Kenworth in 1980, knowing each other but not yet friendly. In 1983, when Jim transferred into painting, he and Gary reconnected. Behind his back, Kenworth co-workers called Gary Wrongway Ridgeway. But the truth was Gary did his job with skilled precision, doing it the right way. Gary might be a little off, but he was good at his job and had an amazing memory, recalling every speck going back for years. He was the go-to guy if anyone had questions. Gary told off-color, one-line jokes all the time. Not sexual but more like why did the chicken cross the road type jokes. And Gary never used foul language and never smoked. He was always polite. He never took a sick day and was absolutely dependable. When Jim became a shop steward in their union, Gary began going to meetings. After Gary's arrest and release in 1987, it was Jim who reminded their colleagues that Gary was not guilty, so stop speculating that he was. And when the police never followed up, they all figured it was a big mistake moving on. Details on that 1987 arrest. The police came and took Gary for questioning around 2 p.m. His truck was also impounded. A week later, Jim went with Gary to retrieve it. Jim asked him point blank, did he have anything to do with these murders? And Gary convincingly said that he did not. Jim knew that they'd taken in a few other guys who'd also been released, so he let it go. It couldn't be Gary. Kenworth co-worker Diane LaPonte, interviewed in a documentary, Sins of the Father, the Green River Killer, confirmed Jim's viewpoint. Gary was helpful, charming, funny. But the day when he was finally arrested, she said, quote, it felt like a punch to my stomach, end quote. Jim and Gary saw each other at union meetings every three weeks. Gary got off at 3 p.m. with the meeting starting around 7 p.m. So I believe Gary had four hours to cruise for sex workers. He never missed a meeting, and he did have positive input and worked well as a part of the union team. Later, Judith would comment that Gary got home from union meetings between 10 and midnight, Gary telling her the guys had stopped out to eat. But the guys never stopped out to eat. Jim and Gary never went out not before or after union meetings. So again, I think this is when he was picking up prostitutes, sex workers, and killing them. Now, my observation, 
Jim seemed really reluctant to identify Gary as a friend, which I can certainly understand. He reminds Pennywood that Gary brought lunch to work, so they weren't lunching together. Linda, his wife, says back in 1987, she'd asked Jim, what if Gary's guilty? And Jim told her, quote, well, I imagine they would arrest him, end quote. But Gary wasn't arrested. Once he and Judith married, the Baileys and the Ridgeways would go out to eat at Coco's restaurant. One time when they were heading out, Gary told Jim that the car behind them was the police following him, which creeped Jim out. But eventually they stopped following, which further convinced Jim that Gary wasn't involved. So do you see why people just didn't see Gary as the killer? He had been cleared in their minds. His final arrest was another 15 years away. In 1993, Gary shifted to a new plant built in Renton, while Jim took a business representative job. At the time, Jim anticipated that the Baileys and the Ridgeways would hang out more after retirement. They talked about going camping together, but none of this would happen. Linda mentioned to Pennywood that few of the 60 invited from Kenworth came to Gary and Judith's wedding. I believe it was just Jim and Linda, actually. Jim was the best man, and it was a happy day, and Judith was affectionate and hugging Gary. He was not, however, never a mushy guy. He was quiet, except for the quirky little jokes that cracked Linda up. He would always pull a chair out for Linda, very polite. They had gone to garage sales together, with Linda having home interior parties that Judith came to. Linda found Gary to be weird. He wasn't upbeat, and he turned on and off really fast. Judith had shared with her that they loved going camping and making love in the woods. Linda recognized that Gary treated Judith, quote, with compassion while he was another way with those other women, end quote. He made Judith feel like a newlywed every day. They learned Gary had been arrested for the murders on the news, both shocked, senseless. Jim called Kenworth to confirm, and Linda tried calling Judith but couldn't get through. They got a call from the Green River Task Force wanting to interview them, but they declined. They were just too much in shock. It had to be an outrageous mistake. But when the DNA came back matching, they knew Gary was guilty. Linda couldn't be completely honest with Judith though she urged her to get a divorce. Judith was in deep denial. She went with Judith to visit Gary and was completely numb. She advised him to get right with God. And Jim told Penny, quote, he knew he was done. The run was over. He was just playing his cards to not get the death penalty, end quote. Jim admitted he had a hard time sleeping for a long time. He thought he was perceptive about people. But here, he'd hit a brick wall. It undermines one's self-confidence when you admit such a viper into your home. Jim just didn't see it, not one sign. He withdrew from his Kenworth friends because when they'd run into each other, all they wanted to talk about was Gary. Jim felt so betrayed. He trusted Gary. Jim refused to read any of the letters that Gary wrote to Linda. And he came to realize that Gary, quote, worked hard at his good qualities to cover up the bad. That's why we saw so many positives about him and never really got into the negatives, end quote. That makes a lot of sense. June 13th, 2003, Gary signed the plea deal with his defense attorney, 
Tony Savage, negotiated with prosecutor Norm Maling. Gary agreed to disclose the location of bodies in Kings County, and Maling would cease seeking the death penalty. In an ultra-top-secret location at Boeing Field, Gary spent hundreds of hours describing his dates with sex workers that he picked up along the strip on Highway 99. He had sex with many prostitutes that he did not murder, and some he claimed to care about, so he didn't want to hurt them. But the ones that made him angry, he killed. How did he find his victims? Gary said he would pull over and offer $20 for sex. Only satisfied by being behind the woman, he would strangle them using socks, pants, wires, cords, whatever he happened to have. Once she was dead, he removed all the clothing and jewelry and retrieved his $20. Next, he dumped the body. Before Judith, he killed in his house, but also outdoors and in his truck. He tossed the clothes out the window as he was driving along. Occasionally, he'd return to the body to have sex again if the maggots weren't too bad. Utterly disgusting. All right, I can't, I can't even. He attempted to throw law enforcement off by posing the bodies, quote, aware that killers often left a signature on the bodies and at the crime scene and wanted to confuse the police by creating different signatures, end quote. He put rocks up into a woman's vagina. He arranged limbs in odd positions. Once, he lit a victim's hair on fire. Some were buried, others were not. But in the end, it was the DNA they'd taken in 1987 and minute paint flicks from Kenworth on the victims that got him. Thanks to the perseverance of Sheriff Dave Reichert, one of the key detectives in the disbanded Green River Task Force. After facing his victims' families and being sentenced, Ridgway began life at Walla Walla State Penitentiary, January 6, 2004, located at 1313 Mockingbird Lane. <laughs> All right, no, I'm kidding. But 1313 North 13th, still an ominous address. Located in the intensive management unit, Gary is in solitary confinement 23 hours a day. No cafeteria, no mingling in the yard. He may get an hour of solitary yard time on a barren smudge of dirt between four walls. He could swap yard time to make collect phone calls. If there is a monsoon going on, Gary still goes into the yard, however. He eats his meals in his cell, slid in via a small slot in the door, and he's now a vegetarian. Greg, his brother, deposits money into his account so he can buy toiletries, pencils, paper, and postage stamps, and he can use up to two pencils a week between writing letters and studying the Bible. December 2006, Gary called Pennywood Collect. Did Gary have any sense that November 30th, 2001 was his day of reckoning? Well, no, he didn't. He was stunned and thought it was rude how they grabbed him and took him to a room to be interviewed. It took him a day to realize he'd really been arrested, and this was it. He was very concerned about Judith, knowing she'd have a hard time absorbing all of this alone without anyone's help. Penny and Gary reminisced about when he first met Judith at the Parents Without Partners dance. He really liked her, kind of laid back, curious. She was different. They danced and stayed up all night, having breakfast till dawn. How did Judith compare with his previous wives? He explained that Judith was more dependent, that she needed someone. He admired her creativity, her crafts, doll making, and jewelry. Her least desirable trait? Well, she could be a wuss. 
but she would also challenge him, like playing pool, where they each won about 50% of the time. His first wife, Claudia, was a Navy wedding, which fell apart when she was away from home. Second wife, Marcia, actually knew Judith from when Marcia was playing in a band. And Judith was more caring than either exes, and he trusted her. Gary had tried to learn from the mistakes made during his first marriages. Marcia complained he was bossy. So with Judith, he tried to do what she wanted 90% of the time. Uh, had Judith improved his life? Gary agreed 100% that they made a good team. Quote, she was the best I could ever get. So there was nothing I wanted to do to hurt her. End quote. But he still lied and he cheated on her and killed people. He felt bad about it, but really enjoyed getting away with it. Didn't he think he'd hurt Judith doing all these bad things? No, because he didn't think he'd be caught. The narcissist coming through. And if he did, he knew a lot enough to avoid the death penalty. The same with his son, Matthew. They had a good relationship, but he never thought he'd find out. And today, they have no contact and no relationship at all. Did Gary think marriage to Judith would reduce his sex urges and his need to date sex workers? In his roundabout way, he said that there are no programs out there for serial killers. He controlled his urge until he couldn't. And the truth is, it controlled him and addiction. He wanted to retire with Judith away from the strip so he wouldn't be tempted because he'd only hunt when driving back and forth to work, never on the weekends where he and Judith were doing things. He believed that getting away with this all the time was a thrill. Had their sex life been satisfying? Well, yes, it had. And he'd protected Judith because he used condoms and he washed himself with alcohol to try to prevent Judith from getting an STD. Oh, such a hero here. Gary would admit to hating prostitutes, saying that the women he killed were garbage. He admitted to having murderous sexual fantasies about killing his mother. The Seattle Times reported that he said the victims, quote, don't mean anything to me, end quote. He had forgotten what they looked like, but he knew the geographic areas. All right, look, Gary Ridgway lacks caring. Where most of us would swerve to avoid a squirrel on the road, Gary wouldn't. He once choked a 16-year-old girl face-to-face, -face, but he didn't like watching her as she gasped for air and died. He didn't want images like that in his mind, so he strangled other victims from behind. So what it comes down to is that Gary Ridgway is a pathetic guy with mommy issues and nothing more than that. Long before Judith, in July 1982, Ridgway picked up a woman with his son in the car. He strangled her in a nearby woods and then told his son that the woman had decided to walk home. Another time, he had sex with a dead body of one of his victims while his son slept in his truck about 30 feet away. Matthew Ridgway told investigators that he doesn't remember any strange woman in the car or being left alone in the truck for a long time. Ridgway had photos of his son in the truck and in his wallet, which put his victims at ease. He was an average family guy. He couldn't be the Green River Killer, and they were so terribly wrong. And this is an important goal of this podcast. It's time to remember the victims. Deborah Lynn Bonner was the youngest of three children who went by the nickname Dub. Her family struggled economically all her life. Dub's mother Shirley describes her, quote, She had so many friends, black and white. She was good-hearted and all that. 
She loved everybody. She'd do anything for anybody, end quote. After falling in with the wrong friends, Dub dropped out of high school, began abusing alcohol, triggering major fights with her parents. After losing her job at Dairy Queen and failing a test to join the Navy, Dub decided to work on getting her GED. But then she met 27-year-old Robert L. Martin, a known drug-dealing pimp. Quickly becoming infatuated with Martin, she began working the West Coast circuit to support them. Quote, Soliciting sex made it possible to live a lifestyle of traveling and being able to purchase heroin. While Dub would go to the streets looking for business, Martin would spend time working the taverns in Tacoma. End quote. Dub called her folks a few times a week, always ending the calls with, I love you. She was 23 years old when she was last seen, July 25, 1983. Daughter of Robert and Patricia Holman, Carol Ann Christensen was a registered member of the Blackfeet tribe of Browning, Montana. She and a slew of siblings grew up in Hokiam before moving to Grays Harbor. Sister Pepper was only six when Carol was murdered and greatly resembles her. In 1980, Carol Ann married Dennis Christensen and had a daughter named Sarah that her parents adored. Dennis and Carol Ann separated in 1982, with Carol taking a waitressing job at the Barn Door Tavern. She was not a sex worker. Carol had just finished lunch at the tavern and was planning to return later to work the night shift. It would have been her second day on the job, and she never made it. Gary admits that he and Carol Ann were dating. She was his girlfriend. One day, they were being intimate, and Carol had to get going. She needed to leave for work. Losing his mind, Gary was furious that she had no time for him, becoming enraged, and he killed her, even though he cared for her. He dumped her body, staging it, placing fish and a bottle of wine on top of her, saying that he threw her away. So many lives interrupted. Ridgway coldly described the dead woman as his property and said that he got great satisfaction from driving past the sites where he dumped bodies. He had nightmares about forgetting locations. Quote, I had control of her when I killed her, and I'd have control over her where she was still in my possession. End quote. That feeling of control can become addictive to the serial killer. Like he was jonesing, Ridgway would tremble with frustration when a woman refused to get in his truck or to go into the woods where he could strangle her. Quote, I had to calm down so I wouldn't look like I was, you know, scared and shaking, end quote. Ridgway denies any child abuse in his past, but he acknowledges feeling humiliated by his mother, likely because he wet the bed until he was 13 years old, and his mother would clean up and wash his genitals. Now, this certainly could create an inner turmoil. Confused and embarrassed, Gary lusted after his mom and wanted to stab her because he was confused and embarrassed. He admitted to smothering the cat as a child, and killers often begin with animals. As a teen, he stabbed a boy just to see what it felt like. Big red mountain. Watch out when a child kills animals or tries to kill any other children. More and more neurological studies suggest biology may be a key component in shaping the murderous mind. That, from what is innate at birth, to brain damage caused by accidents or a concussion. For example, being hit in the head with a swing or a bat. Based on interviews with more than 150 killers, Dr. Jonathan Pincus, 
neurological chief at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Washington, D.C., believes the latest research shows that it's a combination of three conditions to create a serial killer. Child abuse, brain damage, and a mild mental disorder such as paranoid thoughts. Dr. Pincus is the author of Basic Instincts, What Makes Killers Kill. So read the book because it's terrific. Giselle Lovehorn had a happy childhood. Smart with an IQ of 145, she was the youngest in her fairly normal upper middle class family. An avid reader, her favorite book was The Thornbirds. I love that one too. When she hit the teenage years, Giselle had some problems, running away when she was 14, setting off to follow Grateful Dead concerts because she was such a huge fan. She met an older man, taxi driver, called Jack Back, an older guy who totally took advantage of her, getting her into sex work to pay their bills. She was murdered at 17. Terry Renee Milligan, brilliant student whose dream school was Yale, where she planned to major in computer science. She was also very active in her church, but her life took a turn when Terry got pregnant in middle school. So young, she gave birth to a son that she adored, but the baby forced her to drop out of school. At 16, she and her boyfriend were living in a hotel where Terry supported them by sex work. She was 16 when her body was found. It was hard to find information on 23-year-old Denise Darcel Bush. A Portland native, Denise was an experienced and fairly cautious sex worker who often went to Seattle to work where the money was better. At some point during her young life, Denise had a medical procedure involving her brain and her skull had a small hole in the bony portion. She also suffered from bouts of epilepsy that was controlled with medication, much like Judith. In Seattle, in the fall of 1982, with her boyfriend, Dink Pimp, Denise was last seen on October 8th on her way to get cigarettes in a nearby convenience store. Like Denise Bush, Shonda Lee Summers is an enigma. Born in 1965, Shonda was one of three children, including her sister, Charsay. Shonda was only 17 at the time and was last seen along the Pacific Highway South. During Gary Ridgway's sentencing, Charsay Woods Summers addressed him, quote, the same lives that you took seem to be the same lives saving yours now. I find that very ironic, end quote, since his confession saved him from the death penalty when the prosecution made that deal with the devil. In high school, Shirley Marie Sherelle was on the Bluebirds drill team, and her friends recall her love of dancing. The oldest of three daughters, Shirley grew up in a tight-knit family, her mom a school bus driver, a pet lover, Shirley adored her dog, Lady. She became a sex worker by 1982. A close friend last saw her on October 18th after having lunch at their favorite Chinese restaurant in Seattle's International District. She was 18 when Ridgeway killed her. 1982. Colleen Brockman was living with her dad and brother near Lake Washington Ship Canal in North Seattle. Full of teen angst, 15-year-old Colleen would run away for a few days and then typically return. But in December, she made a decision to leave, packing most of her clothes, her Christmas gifts, the family stereo, and some money. Wanting her home, Colleen's dad filed criminal charges, hoping that she would be located faster. And Colleen was last seen alive on December 28, 1982. 
Born in Crescent City, California on February 5, 1959, 15-year-old Gail Matthews found herself pregnant. Weighing options, Gail chose to move to Washington to live with friends. There, Gail gave birth to a son that she gave up for adoption. Two years later, Gail married Kenneth Matthews, a man seven years her senior. Their daughter was born later that year. The couple separated in 1980, agreeing to joint custody, although their daughter spent most of the time with her dad. By 1982, Gail was living on welfare, moving from one friend's house to the next, while trying to see her daughter as much as possible. To pay for her hotel room, Gail resorted to sex work and vanished. She was 23, one of the older victims. Her husband, Kenneth Matthews, pondered, quote, I wonder if she would have gotten over her problems, but she never had the chance, end quote. Oof. Alma Smith divided her time between her dad, who lived in Seattle, and her mom in Walla Walla. She dropped out of high school at 17 and turned to sex work to support herself. Attempting to change, Alma went to the Echo Glen Children's Center, which helps girls get out of sex work. Despite the counseling she was receiving, Alma left and returned to prostitution, where she disappeared in February 1983. Friends say she was a very generous person who didn't have a malicious bone in her body. The name Kimi Kai is Hawaiian, translating to Golden Sea at Dawn, the perfect name for a girl who loved unicorns and the color purple. In this book, Green River Running Red, Kimi Kai Pitzer's mom recalls that Kimi Kai wanted to see how life worked and never took anyone's word for anything. She had to see it for herself. Her mom remembered telling her, quote, be a little girl for a while. Enjoy yourself. You have all the time to be a grown-up with all those problems, end quote. But she wanted to be an adult so bad. Kimi Kai was 16 when she disappeared, like so many of the young women in the Seattle area. Dolores Williams was born in June of 1965. A sex worker, she was aware and concerned about the Green River killings, deliberately working in better neighborhoods to meet wealthier clients. She was last seen around 2 p.m. on February 6, 1983, at a bus stop outside the Red Lion Hotel. She was 17. Remember, that's the same hotel that Judith went to kind of hide right after Gary was arrested. Andrea Childer's 19th birthday was celebrated with her grandmother, with whom she was very close. Quote, she came for a late birthday celebration. Her birthday was March 29th. She was wearing a beautiful dress and long gray coat. I baked her a chocolate cake. She kissed me, like always, and then she left. End quote. A native of Southern California, Andrea moved to Seattle in 1990, going to live with her father and his wife. Grandmother said of Andrea, quote, she wanted to be a dancer. She gave lessons and she was very good and she taught dance exercise, end quote. Carrie Royce did not have an easy life. After Carrie reported her stepfather was sexually abusing her, she briefly went to live with her biological father. This relationship was fraught with disagreement, however. Her mother finally left her stepfather, but Carrie refused to live with her again. She grew up living in multiple group homes. She did visit mom for Christmas in 1982. The 15-year-old was described as being cooperative, friendly, and eager to get along. Carrie had a lot of friends and played the flute in her high school marching band. 
idolizing actress model Brooke Shields and her Calvins, Carrie dreamed of becoming a model too, but she disappeared without a trace sometime in June of 1983. So after World War II, Germany was divided into East and West, unifying in 1990. Martina Teresa Authorly was born in Fourth West Germany when her father was stationed there while in the U.S. Army. In 1968, the Authorly family returned to the States and settled in Washington. Martina went to Bethel High School, and an athlete, she enjoyed tennis, baseball, and loved swimming and roller skating. She joined the Army National Guard while still in high school, but injured, she was medically discharged before her six weeks of training was up. Sad over her discharge, Martina moved to Oregon to be with some friends, and her mom said she called at least twice a month. In May 1983, she came home to visit her mom for Mother's Day. They went out to lunch with her sharing her plans. She was going to Seattle to pick up a friend and then return to Oregon. Mom gave her some money, and when she offered more, Martina declined. She was working. Her mom said, quote, when she never sent her daddy a Father's Day card and birthday card and never sent her brother a birthday card, when Christmas passed without hearing from her, I just knew there was something wrong, end quote. She disappeared on May 22, 1983, and her remains were discovered 18 months later. Born to nurse Ruth Wims, Cheryl was the youngest of four children. While Cheryl had a drug problem, her mother told the Colombian, quote, she was a quiet girl, secretive, but I don't know where the affiliation with prostitution would come in, end quote. The worst problem Ruth ever had with Cheryl is that she missed school too often at Garfield High School. Cheryl's brother, Solston, said his sister had begun hanging around with prostitutes, prompting him to ask her, was she involved? And Cheryl said she was not. Her sister-in-law, Lauren Wims, said that Cheryl was just gorgeous. And Cheryl's former boss from a downtown restaurant described Cheryl as, quote, quiet, conservative, and conscientious, end quote. She was last seen alive May 23rd, 1983, her 19th birthday. 26-year-old Deborah May Abernathy arrived in Seattle just weeks before her disappearance on September 5th, 1983. Coming from Waco, Texas, she traveled with her boyfriend and three-year-old son. Quickly broke, Debbie May turned to sex work to make ends meet. They began living with a kind-hearted couple until they could get on their feet. But then Debbie May disappeared, last seen in downtown Seattle. Tracy Winston was an only daughter in a tight-knit family, clearly long before Title IX, an incredible athlete. Tracy was allowed to join the boys' Little League team, District 7. With pride, her dad recalled, quote, she could throw from center field to home plate without bouncing it once, end quote. Tracy would play on the Glacier High School's first string girls basketball team. Sadly, fighting with her parents escalated and she began running away. She then met an older man with his sister warning Tracy's parents about him. Quote, he's a con man. He's slick and he'll change her so you won't even recognize her. End quote. 100% right. 100%. On September 12th, 1983, Tracy was arrested on a loitering charge. Calling her folks from jail, she vowed she would never go back to jail again and that she'd broken up with the guy. She promised her dad, quote, I'm going to get myself together. I'm going to get my GED, go to school, 
I'm going to make you and mom so proud of me, end quote. But she was embarrassed and desperate for her parents not to come down to the jail. She did not want them to see her like that. And they honored her wish. Bailed out, Tracy saw a cabbie she knew, but he had a fare. If she could wait 45 minutes, he would take her home. When the driver returned, Tracy was nowhere to be found, not ever again. Maureen Feeney was described as shy and naive, loved animals and nature. One of eight siblings, Maureen was sheltered and didn't date in high school. She was emotionally immature and had threatened suicide. By the fall of 1983, Maureen, now 19, was living on her own in a small apartment with her first serious boyfriend. Being social now, Maureen and her best friend chatted every day. The butterfly had emerged from her cocoon. Her boyfriend reported to the police that on the night of September 28th, between 5 and 6 p.m., Maureen left to go to the 7-Eleven, and she never came back, encountering Gary Ridgway. 25-year-old Mary Sue Bellow was a treasure to her family and liked by all that knew her. Quote, I remember how she used to be so happy. She was always helping others. She was so big-hearted, end quote, said her mom of her daughter. Mary was also considered very streetwise, but was last seen on October 11, 1983. Thelma Harris, mother of five, was also Pammy Avent's mom. Troubled and a sex worker, Pammy left home traveling between Portland and Seattle. She was last seen on October 26, 1983, when she was 16 years old, when her mom reported her missing. When remains were found, Thelma Harris braced herself trying to remain hopeful, but knowing it was possible her daughter was gone forever. Delise Louise Flager, known as Missy, was born premature, one of a set of twins. Life greatly taxed her parents, and when Missy and her brother were five, they were taken away. Adopted separately, her brother's new family wanted no contact with Missy. Wow, I can't imagine losing your parents, how inept they are, and then your twin brother. Missy was hyperactive with a learning disorder, which caused her to struggle in school, where she was bullied. In 1980, Missy had two children she adored, Nicole and Daryl, but she was not mature enough to take proper care of them. And then in 1982, the miracle. A woman came up to Missy saying, quote, you know, you look enough like my boyfriend to be his twin, end quote. Whoa. After 17 years, Missy and her brother were reunited. She also connected with their mother, Patricia, whose alcoholism had worsened over the years. Patricia had no remorse or empathy for her children. After drinking too much liquor, Patricia said, quote, You've got so many problems, maybe it would have been better if they hadn't resuscitated you when you were born. End quote. Well, Patricia, way to devastate your child. Terrible. Well, Missy developed a drug problem shortly after this and relied on sex work to financially support herself. Going to deliver a Halloween costume to a friend's child, Missy disappeared on October 30, 1983, when she was 22 years old. A native of Ann Arbor, Michigan, Kimberly Nelson dropped out of high school her junior year. Moving to Seattle, she developed a heroin addiction. She went by many nicknames, one of which was Star. By 1983, Kimberly Star was the sole financial support of her pimp, 
the lazy, selfish piece of crap that he was. A friend of Star's recalled that she was fearless. Quote, she wasn't afraid of anyone. She would get in a car with anyone. She was so confident that she could take care of herself, end quote. Leaving her belongings, makeup, and jewelry in her hotel room, she disappeared in late October or early November 1983, age 21. She was three months pregnant. Oh, wow, this is so hard. For 19 years, Lisa Yates had been shuttled from home to home. Eventually, Lisa went to live with her sister's family, where she was adored by her niece, Veronica. And Rule writes, quote, she was young and beautiful, gifted, loving, and funny. I thought she was so cool, but she was killed when I was nine, and she was supposed to come pick me up right before she was murdered. She promised me a winter picnic in the park, and I was looking forward to that for such a long time, end quote. Encountering Ridgeway, Lisa disappeared on December 7, 1983. June 2012, Kings County Sheriff's Office announced that Jane Doe B-16 had been identified as Sandra Denise Major. Her remains had been found in 1985. A cousin in Rochester, New York, was watching a TV program on the Green River Killer and was spurred to submit DNA because the final letter received from Sandra had been postmarked Seattle. Well, maybe. And it worked. Sandra's family made a statement saying, quote, We are grateful to finally know what happened to Sandra after all these years. We were aware of the lifestyle Sandra led, but she was still part of our family. And we last saw Sandra in New York in 1982. We never heard from her again and did not know what happened to her. End quote. Update. December 2010. The remains of another victim were found, and she was identified as Rebecca Marrero, a 20-year-old sex worker. She was born on August 4, 1962, into a close family of her mother and sister who called her Becky. She would eventually have a daughter she named Shantae. It came to the point where Becky was considering having her mother adopt her daughter. And the last time the family saw Becky, she told her mom, quote, I'm going to be gone for a long time and where I'm going, I can't take the baby, end quote. A good friend of Deborah Estes, another victim. Becky was trying to make some extra money for Christmas presents when she went missing. And then later in 2010, Gary Ridgway pled guilty to homicide number 49 and went back to solitary confinement 23 hours a day. In January 2021, Kings County Sheriff's Office made an announcement that, quote, scientists and other professionals who employed the latest in emerging DNA and genealogical techniques were able to give Jane Doe B-10 a name, Wendy Marie Stevens, the youngest victim of Gary Ridgway, age 14. Back in 1984, human bones had been discovered in a Little League baseball field by a man walking a dog. So 36 years later, thanks to help from the DNA Doe Project and Kings County forensic anthropologist Kathy Taylor, Wendy Stevens got her name back. In an interview with the New York Times, Wendy's mother, Cecile Gaspar, recalled her daughter as a girl who thought everyone was a potential friend, quote, an easygoing and magical kid, end quote. Back in 1981, Cecile, second husband, Alan, and daughter moved to Denver where she easily made friends at her new school. 
But Wendy became a teenager and became rebellious, occasionally taking off and skipping school. Cecile explained, quote, there would be no forethought. She would leave in the winter without a coat, end quote. The last time Wendy ran away from home was in August 1983, with her mom filing a report. In April 2021, Paragon and the Kings County Sheriff's Office, with again help from forensic anthropologist Kathy Taylor, created a new composite portrait of Jane Doe B-17, an unidentified victim. She has blonde hair and green eyes. Please take a look at this new composite on my blog. And if you think you might know who she is, contact Kings County Sheriff's Office at 206-296-3311. Or you can email at mcutips at kingscounty.gov. The reference number for this case is 86-000818. 16-year-old Cassie Ann Lee's body has never been located. The teenager worked part-time at a photo mat kiosk and as a sex worker. She had gotten married to her pimp, Anthony Pretty Tony Lee, sometime in April 1982. And Cassie was last seen in August walking to a nearby store for dinner supplies. Kelly K. McGinnis was born in April 1965 with her parents divorcing three years later. Her mom remarried and she and Kelly remained close. At 13, Kelly was traumatized. While babysitting, she was sexually assaulted by a group of drunken boys. A life-altering event, Kelly ran away from home and began working as a sex worker, entering into a relationship with a pimp named Raphael Wilson. By 1983, she and Wilson had two children. After Kelly was sent to jail, her oldest child, a son, was placed up for adoption and her four-month-old daughter placed in foster care. She intended to retrieve her daughter after her release, but went missing before the reunion. Kelly was last seen in June 1983. She was only 18 years old. Her case is featured in a documentary called My Uncle is the Green River Killer, where Gary's niece and family members reflect back and try to help heal some remaining wounds. It is well worth the watch and just tore my heart out. By age 17, Patricia Osborne had left home for good, and she was an occasional drug user and sex worker. She reportedly stayed in touch with her mom, making sure to call on the holidays and birthdays. When she was 19, Patricia went missing last seen on October 28, 1983. Leaving a note that she was heading to the South End, 16-year-old Rose Curran left her family home for the last time on August 26, 1987. Known for living a risky lifestyle, a former teacher saw Rose outside of Lucky's used trucks the same night in an area frequented by the Green River Killer. Now, Ridgway confessed that he had killed a teenager named Darcy or Dorsey in the late 1980s. Police believe this was 16-year-old Darcy Wade. Wade had run away from home on April 26, 1990, and disappeared. Well, Judith became all too aware of these women, their lives snuffed out by her husband. She struggled to merge the realities of her life with Gary and his life as a serial killer. It took years, but Judith moved forward. 
As her fear of a hostile reception retreated, Judith no longer peeked out her windows to ensure she was alone before getting the mail. She found that some people had sympathy for her, with some sharing their own stories of tragedy and betrayal. Joining a local Baptist church, she still feared rejection and scorn. But starting to meet other church members, she struck up a friendship with an older woman from Bible study. And finally, Judith took a leap of faith and told her about her marriage to Gary. Listening, the woman offered gentle, comforting responses, and Judith was relieved she was not rejected at all. By now, Judith also adopted an adorable black and white chihuahua she named Precious Princess. And since Judith still suffered from PTSD and social anxiety, Precious Princess became her official comfort dog. When Judith's world imploded, her ex-husband, Lee Lynch, offered comfort. Well, good for him. With children and grandchildren part of their mutual lives, it seemed right for Judith to make her peace with Lee. And in 2014, she went to his Passover celebration with Marie and Rachel, eight grandchildren and eight great-grandchildren, with Judith and Lee joyous at having their big family under one roof. Later, tragedy struck on April 18, 2015. Great-granddaughter Malaysia Marie Miracle Grant was killed in her child seat in her mother's car in a drive-by shooting in Kent, Washington. The family suffered terrible grief, unified in their shared loss. In 2019, Marty Kine was found guilty of second-degree murder, with Judge Joanna Bender sentencing 27-year-old Kine to 48 and a half years in prison. Kime had been the leader of a gang and orchestrated the attack on the Grant family because Malaysia's father, Martise Grant, was in a rival gang that had killed a friend of Kime's a month earlier. Huh. So immature morons with a distorted sense of masculinity who weigh their self-worth in terms of high-strung antics not fit for eight-year-olds. A baby lost because of this nonsense. Wow, I should, I should really tell you what I'm thinking. All right, at sentencing, the Seattle Times reported that Kime said, quote, I did not kill that baby and I did not participate in killing that child. I am just another person thrown into the criminal justice system, end quote. Well, given Marty Kime's violent rap sheet for violent assault and armed robbery, I don't believe him. Killing a one-year-old baby. Wow, what a man. Oh, is he owning up for his actions? No, he didn't do that. He has no honor, he has no dignity, and he has no future either. In late 2016 at church, Judith met a man that Pennywood called David to protect his identity. Tall, well-dressed, David was confident, polite, and respectful. They spoke easily, and Judith felt comfortable with him. She had learned through the church grapevine that David was a widower. At subsequent church events, David and Judith spoke, and one night he invited her to dinner with Judith agreeing. Soon they were dating steadily, but Judith worried. He'd given her no reason to fear him, but could she ever trust another man again? And he had to know about her past. Well, as they reached their first anniversary with their relationship deepening, through tears, Judith told him about her marriage to Gary. David was surprised, but he did not judge her. He accepted her no matter what had happened in the past. They had fun together. He needed someone. Judith needed someone. 
and they should focus on their future. Well, I want to hug David. He is a stand-up guy. So they went out often having a great time. And then on April 15th, Linda Bailey, Judith's staunch supporter and friend, died. David helped her as she recounted how Linda had been her rock through her darkest years. Later in October, Lee Lynch died at age 77. And again, David was solid, supporting Judith through this sadness. Not long after, David told Judith he loved her, with Judith's brain racing. Quote, does he mean it? What's happening here? Could I ever say those words after what I've been through? No, no, too hard. Stop, stop. Judith looked at David and smiled. David received the message too soon. Well, he would be patient. He would not press her. He would not push her away, end quote. A year later, Judith told David she loved him. A normal man. When the second edition of She Married the Green River Killer was published in 2021, David and Judith had been a devoted couple for five years. November remains a difficult month, Gary being arrested in November, and she trembles, her chest tightens, and she experiences flashbacks. But Judith takes her anti-anxiety meds, lies down, accepting that this too shall pass, and she has no contact with Gary Ridgway. Quote, despite the occasional setback in her recovery, Judith feels grateful that she has achieved triumph after tragedy. End quote. And that concludes episode 61, Rebirth, Her Renaissance, part three of my trilogy, and she married the Green River Killer by Penny Wood. I hope I have met my goals of trying to explain how spouse and family, close friends, co-workers can be oblivious to the homicidal acts of a serial killer in their circle. Judith is not to blame. They are not to blame. Families are not to blame. Gary Ridgway is to blame. Family and loved ones need to be respected on social media by all True Crime followers and definitely by my listeners. I would like to take this moment to thank Fallon Gannon of WickedHorror.com for her terrific articles on the many victims of the Green River Killer and helping us to hear their names and recognize that they were individuals, that they had important lives with people who loved them. And we're not quite done. My interview with Ms. Wood is coming out next. What a font of information. I am so appreciative of her taking time to chat with me. Make sure you read this book. There is so much more to the story than I had time to cover. I skipped Gary Ridgway's handwriting analysis section entirely. I know, but we have all those letters. And my next book is Death Sentence, The True Story of Velma Barfield's Life, Crimes, and Punishments. When North Carolina farmer Stuart Taylor died after a sudden illness, his 46-year-old fiance, Velma Barfield, was overcome with grief. Taylor's family grieved with her until the autopsy revealed traces of arsenic poisoning. Turned over to the authorities by her own son, Velma stunned everybody with more revelations. This wasn't the first time she had committed cold-blooded murder, and she would eventually be tried by the world's deadliest prosecutor and sentenced to death. This is a very different case of a female serial killer by best-selling author Jerry Bledsoe. So read with me. I can't wait to tell you this story with my usual analysis. 
Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. I see you as you hear me. Hey, how about a five-star review? The podcast has been exploding, so let's continue this momentum. Please take a few minutes to leave an awesome review. Share your thoughts with me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com or on Twitter or find me on Facebook and Instagram. New warm weather designs are out on Spreadshop, so get your Murder Shelf Book Club merch. Links are on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com with sources, photographs, show notes, our vegetable strata recipe, and wine pairing. Always trust your gut. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved, music by Carl Hosena, and lyrics by Otto Harbin.